A woman that I went to high school with um, this just a, a month or so ago received the 2017 award from the Associated Press for the best photograph of the year. That is pretty pretty amazing. Uh, she works for the Miracle Alcoa Daily Times. Uh, that's the newspaper back home. And here's the picture that she won that award for. Now, the subject of that picture is another friend of mine from high school. His name is Lee. And I, I've known Lee about as long as, I, as, I could, as I've known anybody. Went to first grade up with him and uh, went to high school with him. Last summer, in fact, it'll be a week ago or a year ago on the 25th of this month, such so as coming up this week, Lee and his wife, Robin, lost their oldest son, Caleb. Just graduated from high school. Caleb was with some people he thought were friends. They were out late at night, and they robbed him, stabbed him six times, and left him to die. Caleb left behind an infant son himself. So as you can imagine, Caleb's tragic death turned this family's life upside down. Lee and Robin are good, hard-working, upstanding, church-going people. Love the Lord. This is the kind of thing that isn't supposed to happen to people like that, right? So when I look at this picture, I can feel the anger, can't you? The hurt, the sadness, the loss of this heartbroken father. And I wonder as I look at his face in this picture, and this picture was taken in the courtroom uh, during, I think it was the arraignment hearing when the accused were brought into the courtroom. This was his reaction. And I wonder, is it hatred for the accused that we see on his face? Or is it a father's love for his son expressed in righteous indignation? I can't begin to imagine what my friend Lee and his family have gone through. And I wonder, what does something like this do to your faith? In the goodness, grace, and power of God. Now, Lee would be the first to tell you that he has struggled with his faith, that he has struggled with God because of this. In fact, the other day on Facebook, he admitted that, that these events have led him to publicly criticize, question, and even deny his relationship with God. And as heartbreaking as that was for me to read, being honest, I had to admit to myself, you know, this could happen to any of us. I can't say how I would respond to a situation like this. I don't know. It has happened to many of God's people throughout history. We see an example of it here in Psalm 137. In Psalm 137, we see God's people heartbroken. Grief-stricken. So much that they can't even pick up their harps to sing praises to their God. And even Christians may face times that leave them so broken that they struggle to praise the Lord. Now, of course, we should always praise the Lord. We're commanded to always praise the Lord in good times or in bad, but that doesn't mean that we feel like it. That doesn't mean that we want to. Ecclesiastes 3, that's what our responsive reading was earlier. Ecclesiastes 3 recognizes that life is filled with seasons. 
There are seasons of life and death, of gladness, but also of grief. God never promised that we wouldn't have those seasons, those times of disappointment and setback and defeat. Psalm 23 that we looked at a few weeks ago tells us that we will face dark valleys in this life. But it also tells us that we're not alone as we go through those valleys. In those dark valleys, we may find ourselves sleepless, crying, sweating, alone, just as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night He was betrayed. When the doctor utters that dreaded word, cancer. When a spouse says, it's over. When a child goes astray. When you fall into financial difficulties. When a loved one dies. In those valleys, praise can evade our lips. In those dark nights of the soul, our hearts can be so filled with despair and doubt that it's virtually impossible for us to lift our voices to God. And this is precisely the kind of grief that the psalmist writes about in Psalm 137. Just to give us some context here, Babylon invaded Judah. They took God's people captive, pillaged Jerusalem, destroyed God's temple. And God's chosen people became exiles, captives in a pagan land. And they knew that this suffering was at the hand of God, that this was the Lord's judgment. It was the Father's discipline on them for their idolatry and their rebelliousness and their wickedness. God had warned them. God had called them to turn through prophets time and again, and they refused. So they carry with them that burden, that guilt, that weight, knowing they've brought this on themselves. And to make matters worse, The pagan Babylonian captors taunt them in their grief. They mock their God. They call on the Jews to sing their joyful songs of Zion even as it lay smoldering in ruins. Is it any wonder their head hung low? Their shoulders sagged. Their tears streamed down their dust-covered cheeks. They were in such despair that they hung their harps on the willow trees, unable to sing. The challenge for us this morning when we face times like this is to hold on to our harps. Don't hang them up just yet. Yes, we face dark days in this life, but we do live on this side of Easter. And we know that there is more to life than just this physical existence on earth. We know that death doesn't get the last word. We know that darkness can never overcome the light. As Paul wrote, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, yes, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. I believe that Psalm 137 can teach us how we can hang on to our harps when everything in us wants to hang them up on the willow and walk away. How can we rejoice when we're hard-pressed and perplexed and persecuted and struck down? Well, let's look at Psalm 137 
And I want us to see three ways. Three things that can help us to hold on to our hearts. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, Happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. If you look back at verses 1 through 4, we see the first thing that can help us to hang on to our harps when we want to give up. The first thing we have to do is actually grieve what we've lost. When the exiled Jews remembered Jerusalem, it caused them to sit and weep. Now, memories are a funny thing. Memories can be a blessing. Memories can make you smile, but they can also make you weep. Sometimes memories bring too much pain and sadness, and so we try to bury the memories. Maybe by refusing to talk about it, Maybe by getting rid of anything that reminds us of, of who or what we've lost. Some people try to drown their sorrows in a bottle or mask their pain with a pill because they just don't want to remember. But see, burying the memories won't make the pain go away, though. And ironically, it's actually remembering that helps to heal the wounds. That's why it's so important for us to learn how to process our pain in honest, mature, healthy ways. That's why it's so important for us to rely on the healing power of Christ as we deal with our pain and our grief. Psalm 147.3, we heard this morning, the promise that God heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. If you're brokenhearted this morning, God can bring healing to you. He can bind up those wounds then nothing else can heal. In Revelation 21.4, we have this promise that at the end of time, when Christ returns, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. These are amazing and true promises that should give hope to anyone this morning who is hurting. But, let me give a warning here. We have to be careful that we don't short-circuit the grief process. That we don't try to rush there and artificially make ourselves feel better. Sometimes Christians are guilty of sort of a spiritualized form of denial because they rush through the grief process too quickly. We have to remember, Jeremiah wept. He mourned and grieved for the people of Jerusalem and Judah. Jesus wept 
When his friend Lazarus died, knowing he was about to raise him from the dead, yet Jesus still took the time to grieve and to weep. The Jewish people endured 400 years of slavery, 40 years of wilderness wandering before they entered the promised land. And the disciples had to endure the dark emptiness of Saturday before they could experience the joy of Resurrection Sunday. And here the Jewish people sat by the rivers, by those canals in Babylon, and they wept for all they had lost back home. Now I want you to notice a few things about their grief process. The first is that they remembered what they had lost. Despite the pain, they chose to remember Jerusalem in all its former glory. In fact, in verses 5 and 6, they, they would rather be cursed than to forget Jerusalem, than to ever fail to consider it their highest joy. Avoiding the pain wasn't worth denying their identity. And the same must be true of us. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you've suffered, choose to remember. Choose to be thankful for the good gifts that God has given you. We need to follow the example of these Jewish people. And we need to remember our identity, our identity in Christ. We need to pass down our stories to our children, the good stories and the bad stories. In our deep anguish, we must remember that our story, no matter how difficult it's been, isn't over. There is hope on the horizon that someday we will know peace and joy again. They remembered. The second thing, they expressed their grief honestly. Sitting is a traditional Jewish posture for mourning. In fact, Back in Job chapter 2, we see that when his friends came to check on him after he had lost everything and suffered this devastating illness, it says they joined him in, their grief, in his grief. It says, Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now this is called sitting shiva, and it's a, it's a tradition still practiced in Jewish communities today. The word shiva comes from the Hebrew word for seven, and it's a tradition of seven intentional days of mourning where even today Jewish people will bring by food and they will come and they will just sit with those who are grieving in their home and they'll just tell stories about the loved one who has passed away. They'll pray, they'll read Scripture together, and they have this intentional period of grief for seven days. We can learn a lot from that. Because we're often tempted to hurry through the process of grief. We want to get people to a happier place. And, and maybe it's because our culture is so obsessed with happiness and pleasure that sadness and pain just make us feel uncomfortable. We feel awkward around people who aren't happy and having fun. I mean, what's one of the first things we ask somebody when they've done something or been somewhere? Did you have fun? As if that's the most important thing that can happen. And so when people are grieving... We don't know what to do. Maybe it's also because we're afraid to face our own mortality. Either way, it often results in people saying well-meaning but empty platitudes. And I want to tell you what I've discovered in walking with families through grief. And that's that your words don't really matter that much. Your words aren't going to really make anything better. That's not what people are waiting from you. They're not waiting to hear what bits of wisdom you have to share with them in their grief. You know what people want from you? You know what speaks louder than your words in times of grief? Your presence. Just be there. Sit with them. Hold their hand. Give them a hug. Tell them you love them. 
sit shiva with them. That's what we need to do. Job's friends were great comfort until they opened their mouths. And then it all fell apart. So let people grieve. Let them sit with their emotions for a time. And we need to allow ourselves to experience our emotions in difficult times. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to wonder why, Lord. God's a big God. He can handle anything that you're thinking or feeling right now. John Bunyan said, You that are called, born of God and Christians, if you be not criers, there is no spiritual life in you. It is okay to express your feelings. If you'll notice in your order of worship under the calendar in there, there's a box that just lists some of the resources we have available if you're in grief, if you're dealing with difficult situations in your life today. At the Faith at Home Center or in, in my office, we can get you help. Ben, Matt, and I are available to counsel with you and, and help you get help if, if that's what you need today. We need to be careful that we don't become like the Babylonian captors, demanding those who are in grief put on a show and express emotions that they don't really feel yet. And when we pressure people to get over their grief too soon, it's like we're demanding them to sing their songs of Zion. But how can they sing songs of joy when they're in the foreign land of grief? Now for the Jews, when they hung up their harps, that was an act of defiance. When they hung up their harps and sat down and refused to sing, that was their refusal to give in to the Babylonians' demands to mock their own faith to entertain their captors. The Babylonians wanted to rub it in that they had defeated the Jews. Where is your God now? Where is your mighty Jerusalem and temple now? Reminds me of the Pharisees mocking Jesus on the cross saying, He can save others, can He not save Himself? And maybe there are even those in your life who are gloating at your misfortune. How do you respond to people like that? Well, rather than lash out and do unto others as they do unto you, you need to follow the example of the Jews in Babylon. Quietly stand your ground. Take the time you know that you need to heal and be faithful to the Lord. Like these Jews, you may need to hang up your harp outwardly, but I implore you to hang on to your harp inwardly. See, by physically hanging up their harps and refusing to give the, the, the Babylonians the satisfaction, the Jews were actually holding on to their harps with a fierce spiritual determination. And that brings us to another aspect of their grief. They worshipped while they wept. They may not have indulged the Babylonians, but they also didn't abandon their worship of God. The fact they even brought their harps with them into captivity is evidence of that. The fact we even have this psalm to begin with is evidence of that. This psalm is a worship song, but it's one that's born out of grief. Even in their grief, they continued to consider Jerusalem their highest joy. Job is once again another example for us. Listen to this song of worship that Job sang after he had lost everything. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We've been looking at the Psalms this summer, and, and if the Psalms only contained songs of order and beauty where everything is as it should be, we would say that they're naive and irrelevant because life just doesn't work that way. Life can be disorderly and ugly, and things don't always happen as they should. 
And likewise, a faith that focuses only on the positive, only on blessings and rewards, is out of touch and dishonest and unbiblical. We cannot gloss over the pain and the anguish that sin and injustice have brought into our lives and into our world. So no matter what you've lost this morning, I want you to know it's okay to remember. It's okay to be brutally honest with God in your grief. It's okay to weep while you worship because God loves you and He understands where you're coming from and He will always return your frustrations and your anger and even your doubt with grace and love and understanding. But we can't stop at simply remembering the pain of the past. We also have to remember what God has promised. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. Here at least one Jew made a vow to the Lord to never forget Jerusalem. He even calls down curses and God's judgment on himself if he ever forgets. But remembering Jerusalem was about more than just remembering the city or the temple. It was about remembering everything that they represented. They were the symbols of God's kingdom promise. Jerusalem. It's where God's Shekinah glory dwelt in the temple. So to remember Jerusalem was to remember that God is jealous of His glory and that God has promised to always dwell in the midst of His people even when they're in exile. Jerusalem is where God revealed Himself to prophets and priests and kings and it's where the people brought their prayers to the Lord. So to remember Jerusalem is to trust that God is still speaking, that His Word will never return to Him void. It's to remember and trust that God will once again raise up a king like David to rule over His people. It's to trust that God still speaks through the prophets and He still hears and answers their prayers. And Jerusalem was the place where the sins of the people were covered over every year on the Day of Atonement. So to remember Jerusalem was to remember that God is a God of grace who forgives. As Psalm 35 says, for His anger lasts only a moment, but His favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Consider this morning God's amazing promises to us that we can remember in in our times of, of, of struggle and despair Verses that can give us hope and strength, like Isaiah 41.10 that says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or Psalm 9, 9 and 10, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 to not worry about our life, what we will eat or drink, or about our body, what we will wear, for your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a little while will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. 
Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. In Revelation 21, verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Every one of these words, every one of these words are trustworthy and true. Now we can't forget that for these Jews in Babylon, God has not yet rescued them from exile. Jerusalem still lays in ruins. That's why they had to remember God's promises and hold on to them with faith. For faith is confidence in what we hope for and it's assurance about what we do not see. We live today in this tension of the already but not yet, between the first and the second coming of Christ, between remembering what God has done for us and trusting in what God will do for us. Put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' disciples, living between the cross on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Like they were, we must hold on to the promises that all is not lost, and that soon, soon, God will make all the sad things come untrue. And one of those promises that we have to hold on to is actually the third key to holding on to our harps. And that's that we have to trust in God that He will act justly. Trust that God will act justly. That's what we see in verses 7 and 9. That verse 9 I know is a difficult verse. The Babylonians were brutal. And verse 9 describes the horrific way that they treated the Jewish people. The Babylonians, as they seized Jerusalem, were taking the infants of the Jews and dashing them against the rocks. Isaiah goes on in several places to describe, even in more detailed and, and gruesome ways, the treatment the Jews received at the hands of the brutal Babylonians. But no matter how harsh and inhumane the Babylonians were, it's just kind of hard to stomach a verse like verse 9. It's hard to get behind that. It almost feels out of place in the Bible, especially here in a prayer. But is it really wrong for the Jews to demand justice for these inhumanities? Is it wrong for them to ask God, up in verse 7, to remember His own promise to judge the Edomites for sitting back and refusing to help Judah and even cheering on the Babylonians' atrocities? Is it wrong for them to ask God to bring judgment? See, I think it's perfectly justified that the Jews would feel this way. Should we as Christians not be enraged when Islamist extremists slaughter 6,000 Nigerian Christian women and children? Should we not be filled with indignation at the, at the millions of innocents who have been murdered in the womb in this country over the last 40 years? Should we not rise up and demand justice for those who cannot speak for themselves or protect themselves? Yes, we should. In fact, the Gospel demands that we should. We cannot say we believe in a holy, just, loving, good God and claim that all people are created in His image and loved by their Creator so much that Jesus died on the cross for them, we can't say we believe all of that and then just sit idly by and not feel, say, or do something to defend the defenseless. 
The Gospel demands that we speak up for what is good and right and just and that we speak against all that is sinful and destructive and defaming of God's holy name. If I may rewrite part of verse 6 here. If I forget the Gospel, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember those far from God, if I do not consider the Great Commission my highest joy. We should and we must pray for and work toward God's justice to be done on earth just as it's done in heaven. But it's God's justice. It's God's justice. Not our version of justice. Not social justice warrior justice. Not political justice. Not personal vindictive justice. It's God's justice. You see, the Jews may have had some harsh words and brutal prayers against the Edomites and Babylonians, but the Jews did not rise up in protest to enact their own brand of vigilante justice. There was no Jewish rebellion in Babylon. In fact, through the prophet Jeremiah, God commanded them to actually settle down and build houses and plant gardens and get married and to make a life for themselves in Babylon. God commanded them to pray for and seek the welfare of their new home, and to trust God to work all things out for their good. Paul tells us the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Boy, do we not need to just plaster that on billboards all over this country today. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is a strong and bold faith that can acknowledge negativity and embrace doubt and uncertainty. That even though things are bad, and it seems as if God is distant, we still love God. We still trust God. Ours is a bold faith, because it proclaims that God's people, we must face reality and take the world as it is. The Bible doesn't try to paint a rosy picture of how the world is. And it's a bold faith because it insists that all experiences of disorder should be brought before God and entrusted to Him. Listen, nothing is out of bounds or improper in your conversation with the Lord. Any question, problem, doubt, struggle, fear, or emotion, it belongs in our prayer life, in our honest, heart-to-heart conversations with God. Now that brings me back to Lee's story. As I mentioned... Last week he got on Facebook and he shared his testimony. And I want to read part of that to you here. In the past I have criticized, questioned, and even denied my relationship with God publicly. So it would be unfair of me not to praise God, stand by God, and defend God publicly. I have recently opened myself to God's Word. For the first time in a long time, if ever really, I have allowed myself to feel God's presence in my life. I cannot explain it in words. I know when I am trying to live a more godly life, a life more like Jesus, I fail daily. 
that I have a peace in my life. I have direction. I have more of a purpose. Please do not let this past year's tragedies make you think, oh, Lee just lost his mind. Oh, Lee is just turning religious because some bad things have happened to his family. Not the case at all. The bad things that happened to my family made me angry and despise God. But God did not do that to my son. If anything, my failures as a father had more to do with it than God. If I'm to blame anyone besides the two men that did it, then I need to blame myself. It is easy to praise God. Listen to this. This is, this is spoken out of somebody who is in this, who is experiencing this. It's easy to praise God when things are going good. Praise God when things are going bad. And see what happens. Lee and I had a conversation this past week about his experiences about his faith journey, and, and I'm thankful to have known Lee and see Lee come to faith in Christ and grow in his walk with the Lord. And he was touched when I asked him if I could share his story this morning in this message. Can you see how Lee and his family have embodied Psalm 137? He went through the dark valley of grief. He wrestled with God in the pain of what happened. He grieved. But then he remembered the promises of God. And now he is learning to trust that God will make sure justice is done in relation to His Son's death. Just as we can trust that in the end, every tear will be dried because the former things have passed away. And behold, Jesus is making everything new. Whether you realize it or not this morning, God has given you a song to sing, a story to tell. You may feel like hanging up your harp and walking away from God or from church or from your job or from your relationship, but don't do it. Don't hang up your harp. Hold on to it. Lee's story on Facebook last I looked had 136 comments. People touched in some way by his experience. Who knows the impact that you can make on other people if you hold on to your harp and share the story of what God is doing in your life? This morning, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. That Jesus took your pain upon Himself. He suffered the wounds that we suffer, that by His stripes we might be healed. And not just emotionally or psychologically, but spiritually. This morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never come to Him in faith and repented of your sins and trusted in Him, Jesus wants to make you new. He wants to heal your heart. He wants to give you a fresh new beginning. In just a moment as we sing, I invite you to come this morning and begin a new page in your story. A, a blank chapter that you can begin to write with the Lord by your side, directing and guiding you. Maybe this morning you need to come and, and confess uh, your sins. Maybe this morning you need to come. This altar is open. Maybe you just need to lay, just kneel at this altar and lay your burdens down and have a conversation with the Lord. Maybe there's somebody that God has burdened your heart with. You need to come and just pray for them because you know that they're going through a Psalm 137 kind of moment. This altar is open for you. Maybe this morning you want to come and you're not with this church. We want to be a safe place where you can wrestle and struggle and find healing and grace. And maybe that's why God has brought you here. Let's pray together before we stand and sing. Father... We thank You that You walk with us through the dark valleys of life. You ride in the boat with us through the storms. You never leave us. You never forsake us. 
And I know there are people here today who feel like they're drowning. They can't keep their head above water. Father, I pray they would look to You and experience Your hand reaching down to grab them and to pull them up and to put their feet on solid ground. May Your Spirit move and work and speak in all of our hearts today and draw us closer to You. In Jesus' name we pray.